I'd like to begin tonight with a uh, Thich Nhat Hanh translation of a much-referenced uh, sutta passage. Here is the foot of a tree. Here is an empty, quiet place. Here is the cool green of the grass. My child, why don't you sit down? Sit upright. Sit with solidity. And sit in peace. Here is the foot of a tree. Here is an empty, quiet place. Here is the cool green of the grass. My child, why don't you sit down? Sit upright. Sit with solidity. Sit in peace. Sometimes the end of this uh, first line, here is an empty, quiet place, sometimes this is translated, here is an empty, quiet hut. Uh, the reference to an empty, quiet place or an empty hut in the foot of a tree is a literal reference that describes a time and place in the history of Buddhist practice where uh, people such as ourselves would go into the forest and find a tree and that would mark their particular place that was sort of their tree and they would do their meditation practice there or uh, as kutis were built by villagers for wandering ascetics to hunker down out of the rain uh, the kuti would have very little in it if anything mostly just providing a, a place of shelter and again, this would be abode, uh, a place to uh, predominantly focus one's attention on developing the mind, on their meditation practice. Uh, more generally, this imagery uh, describes the intentionality of renunciation and dedication to simplicity that supports well-being. We just need a place to sit. And we need a place that is empty of certain things. This passage, uh, we could say, to some extent, describes where we are right now. This is uh, a place surrounded by, uh, literally, uh, the green of the grass. And your meditation cushion, your chair, your bench, uh, this is you at the foot of your tree. Might be a little more comfortable than a foot of a tree with your cushions and blankets. And... But in a sense, uh, you've taken up your place with a significant degree of intentionality. It's quite obvious by the posture, the placement of the cushion, a good substitute for a root of a tree. And we uh, are sitting upright. The solidity of that upright posture will be something that we nurture and sitting in peace is the end result if we apply ourselves with, uh, as it said in the Satipatthana Sutta, with continuity or per perseverance or ardency. If we just continue to pay attention and come back to the anchor, come back to the object. There's a very, very long history, maybe a little bit under, probably we think now a little bit more than 2,600 years 
at least in uh, the tradition uh, given to us by Siddhartha Gautama, uh, who later became the Buddha, there's at least 2,600 years of people uh, leaving home and going to a special place, one dedicated to practice, in order to cultivate their, their mind, in order to develop understanding and, and wisdom. So just by being here, we're, we're starting to be swept along in that current. We can rely, in a sense, on uh, the experiments uh, of so many people who have determined that this very practice we've just begun to do together uh, is useful. It has, it has fruit. So the cushion is the foot of the tree, seven arrows retreat center, an empty quiet place. And this is a place that is empty or without the stuff of your life on a physical level, in a sense. It's without your computer, your cell phone. It's even without certain family members, certain friends. It is without work obligations for quite wonderfully, for the duration of four days. It's without the visual imagery of the things that are in your home, in your apartment, and the pleasant and unpleasant ways that all of these aspects of life stir the mind. So this is an empty place, uh, without the stuff of your life on a physical level, and this aids in emptying out of the stuff of your life on a more personal or inner level. This is the support. That is doing away with the incessant habits of mind that block clear seeing, ease, peace, and happiness. Sit upright, sit with solidity, sit in peace. The reference to upright is cueing our intentionality. The cause of our coming here and the source of our staying and remaining throughout our time. This references our interest and Again, what in some translations of the Satipatthana Sutta, the Sutta on the Four Foundations of Mindfulness, articulates as ardency. This is a distinct quality of uh, perseverance, steadiness, uh, commitment. The words will and discipline can be provocative, but uh, for those for whom those words work, uh, that is referenced in upright. Sit with solidity. This uh, is the quality of staying. Uh, you've heard perhaps uh, holding your seat. Hold your seat. Stay in your seat uh, during both the pleasant and the unpleasant, knowing that in the course of a weekend-long retreat, we will encounter both spheres of human experience. Oh, I'm so glad I'm not thinking about all of those things he mentioned, my work, my relationships, I don't have to tend to my computer, my body feels very light and I'm enjoying the feeling of the sun on my face. So we enjoy the pleasurable experience of that. And yet, maybe three hours later, the body is uncomfortable. There's some strong aversion or attitude of not liking that basic experience, and we don't catch the aversion. Mindfulness is not there to see it clearly. And the contraction gets tighter and tighter, and the next thing we know, the back is wrought with pain and the mind is wondering if maybe this is a good time to sneak out the back door and catch a cab back to the ferry station. Right? And so we just stay. We say, oh, isn't this interesting? Half an hour ago, 
I wanted to move into Seven Arrows and never leave. And now I want to go home. How does this happen? We're actually interested in that. We're actually, how does that happen? That's interesting. Who am I? Am I the pleasant or am I the unpleasant? Where, where is the self in this? So we're maintaining this upright, not just in posture, but in attitude. It's an attitude. This is a, a certain inner disposition that we cultivate. Sit in peace. Relax. Be yourself. It's okay that the back is uncomfortable. It's okay that you think the last meditation session didn't go very well. Um, being in peace is loving yourself, actually. Just as you are. So the solidity and the peace balance each other. Our retreat is titled Deepen and Renew. Which we've all, to, all agreed to enough to be here. So maybe we can talk about what it might mean. Deepen uh, implies grow or growth, increase, strengthen, heighten, deepen, to grow or to increase, to strengthen or to heighten. What would that look like uh, on retreat or in the context of Buddhist practice? What we're deepening or growing or strengthening is insight, is knowledge, a particular kind of knowledge, a particular kind of understanding. This is an acquisition or gaining something. At the beginning of the Mindfulness Sutta, it is written that this, this mindfulness practice, is a complete path to liberation. Which means to the reduction and alleviation of suffering. So very radical statement that the Buddha makes. This path of mindfulness meditation, which is the primary practice we'll do all weekend together, uh, in conjunction with metta, or kindness meditation, the Buddha claims is a complete path to liberation, to freedom. So we deepen our understanding of how suffering arises in life and also how suffering goes away. So we're seeing something about the conditions that give rise to suffering, to disquietude, to unrest, to discontent. We're starting to understand what causes that, what it is that we're doing or not doing that allow us to be less than complete, less than whole, less than happy. And as soon as we start to see that, as soon as we start to understand we're also seeing what it is that we're doing, or more often than not, probably not doing, when these painful and undesirable qualities are gone. They're not present. So we, and we, just that, we have the capacity to know, to see, when suffering's not present. That we actually, uh, we hone that skill. We might even realize that well-being is here 
more often than we realize. And as soon as we start to see it, um, we start to lean into it more often. We, we, it's like we know how to lean in that direction. So what do we see? What, what's, what's this knowledge or insight? How can we begin to understand, um, if you will, the information that we're getting from this practice? One of the ways this is talked about in the tradition is uh, that we see a basic level of not knowing, uh, avidya in Pali or avidya in Sanskrit, sometimes translated as ignorance. And this isn't quite the ignorance with the heavy, accusatory, negative connotations that are associated with the word here in the West, um, which can evoke uh, ideas like one is not smart enough or good enough or, um, you know, you can fill in the blank. But do you, you have a sense of this word being um, derogatory almost. Uh, avidya, avidya is... Uh, it's just not knowing. It's not knowing something fundamental about how the mind works. So we don't quite yet have right view, fully established. We have right view enough to know that suffering exists and there's possibly an alternative. And that brings us to the practice. It brings us to retreat. But we still, didn't, we still don't know yet exactly how the mind works. And we just see this. And we see it more clearly and more clearly and more clearly. We don't clearly see the true nature of things. We, we don't see clearly the true nature of things. <coughs> we want happiness, and we see that, we understand, and we start to see that we're going about it in the wrong ways. How can we possibly want happiness so badly and often feel like it keeps slipping through our fingers? Because we don't, there's something we don't know. We don't yet understand that our perception and experience of self is not in accord with reality. The glasses through which we view life are a little foggy. They need to be cleaned, in a sense. This is avidya. Right? Again, it's not that we're, we're not really doing anything wrong. We're not bad. Right? This is not a right or wrong, good or bad. It's a question of skill. It's a, it's a question of refining how nuanced the mind can see how the mind itself is properly managing or not managing the affairs of life. The cleaning agent is mindfulness. This is how we do this work. This is how we wipe away the foggy glasses so that we can see better. It's insight meditation. What else do we see? We see the Four Noble Truths. And this is, this is the basic model that the Buddha gave us. And this is a model which we can say is the result of Avidya, or this, uh, this construct that we call the Four Noble Truths is the result of Avidya. At least the first step, the, what we could call the symptom. Okay, So this is exploring the Four Noble Truths in the language of uh, a conventional medical model. So the symptom is dukkha. 
right? That's the reality that we find ourselves in. There's a certain quality of unsatisfactoriness that we experience in life, okay? This is the truth of having a mind and body, that we are not always content, right? I mean, when we hear the Dharma, we don't tend to really argue with it. It seems so simple. Dukkha is our unease. Dukkha was uh, that feeling of restlessness that some of you may have felt in our first meditation period. Just a sense that like, the body wants to move. You know, the stay, what do you mean stay still? You know, and it gets a little uncomfortable, doesn't it? The, the, the room starts to get even smaller. Right? 20 minutes feels like 40 minutes. Stress, anxiety, this is dukkha. Disconnection, feel disconnected from yourself, your purpose, your authenticity, feel disconnected from other people. Not as a global character trait. Maybe you find yourself stuck in any one of, in any one of these dimensions from time to time. But we're cycling through these variations of dukkha. Alienation, you lose a job, a partnership or a marriage ends, there's sadness. Anguish, even disquietude is dukkha. Right? Just the difficulty in connecting in with a quiet, stable, tranquil, peaceful mind. That's dukkha. Disquietude is dukkha. Houston uh, Smith, a well-known religious historian, writes regarding dukkha explicitly, there is less creativity, more conflict, and more pain than we feel there should be. That covers a lot of territory, right? There is less creativity. I love this, because we don't talk about this so much in Buddhist circles. Dukkha is less creativity, which I would translate as there's less capacity to be really, really skillful, to really, really be a skillful human being at the level that we want, at the level that we want. There's less creativity, more conflict, and more pain than we feel there should be. So what's the diagnosis? The second noble truth we can understand as a diagnosis of this basic problem. And that's tanha in Pali, T-A-N-H-A, tanha, which translates literally as thirst. And we often define this with three words, craving, wanting, and desire. What this teaching is getting at is that there's a certain uh, quality of movement in the mind that is a departure away from the present moment. This occurs for a variety of reasons. And it's this action of the mind away from what is that creates a division, a sense of separation, right? And then we're, uh, we're perpetually trying to close that gap which we could describe itself as dukkha. And yet again, because of avijja, we don't quite know how to do it. So we have all these unskillful tendencies. So uh, tanha can show up as grasping, clinging, as sort of, a, sort of a moving into the future, away from the present moment, or it can show up in the inverse, aversion, or pushing away the present moment. Right? There's two qualities of tanha. So we're always pushing and pulling that reality at the present moment instead of just letting it be. Right? What's the prognosis, the third noble truth? What's the prognosis? Well, here we get to the good news pretty quick. Step one, dukkha. Step two, 
cause, tanha, or diagnosis. And step three, prognosis. Cessation. Okay. The absence of dukkha. We can understand cessation as the absence of dukkha. So what the Buddha was saying is, let's be really honest. Let's be humble. Uh, let's be uh, transparent uh, amongst ourselves. Uh, and let's just acknowledge that life is difficult. Okay? Sometimes more than others. Sometimes there's, uh, the conditions come together such that things are going well. And the possibility of cessation. And this uh, is described in the suttas as awakening, as liberation, a particular kind of freedom that comes by way of insight, a certain very distinct uh, quality of understanding that comes through practice, where uh, this uh, avidya uh, is seen through. And yet all along the way, there are these gradual insights that are allowing us to relax more and more and more into the reality of our life. This is the, this is the letting go that teachers are often referring to. Well, what are we letting go of? We're letting go of our reactivity. We're letting go of our reactivity to how things are. And so the heart and mind can soften and relax. We're letting go of all the uh, minutia and variations of tanha, of the second noble truth of craving. So I want to emphasize the radical hopefulness that these teachings articulate in which the practice itself points to as a distinct reality for us in this lifetime. On this meditation cushion, under this tree, in this empty place, on this retreat. Very, very, very possible. And why is it possible? Why is it possible? What is, how would we do this? And the answer to this is in the fourth noble truth, which is the path, the Buddha's eightfold path, which grounds itself fundamentally in mindfulness meditation or insight practice, which is what we're doing. That's what we're here to, in a sense, study, not intellectually, but experientially. So, deepen is the first part of uh, the way we describe uh, the retreat. And the second part is to renew, deepen and renew What does renew mean? Uh, Renew could mean to resume, to resume something that has uh, stopped, uh, paused. To return to, to return to something we've lost, something we've forgotten. To take up again to come back to, or to carry on with. It's almost like we're invigorating something that has been dulled, right? We're invigorating something that's been dulled. Or we're bringing something back into our life, or we're bringing something back into our being, our mind and heart perhaps, um, that's been lost. Or maybe just pushed to the side a little bit. Maybe not lost completely. Maybe push to the side a little bit. Some of you spoke, you know, quite simply and directly about how your practice, your personal practice at home ebbs and flows. And part of the intention for retreat is to renew your connection to your practice. Yeah. Wonderful intention for retreat. Retreat serves that very, very well. So what are we going to resume? We're going to resume, perhaps, a basic sense of ease that is often lost in daily life. 
which is difficult to maintain in daily life. The Buddha's teachings were never an accusation. He was just uh, stating these objective truths. Oh, life is really busy. Relationships are complex. Uh, the body has pain, the body gets old, we get sick, sometimes we even end up with sickness that doesn't go away, we call this chronic illness. I'm very uncomfortable, the mind starts to go into different layers of distress, and then the people close to us suffer. Right? This is just how life unfolds. Eventually this body dies, people are afraid of that, so then we have to live with fear. Right? This is not a mind that is at ease. Financial stress, this is not a mind that is at ease. One is not working full-time, but they need to. Right? If you live in New York City, you need to work full-time times three. That's 120 hours a week just to pay your rent. Right? That's stressful. Right? Um, caring for others. So we might resume, perhaps, through our practice, a basic sense of ease that is often lost in daily life simply because it's difficult to maintain, not because we're doing anything wrong. What might we return to? We have the possibility of returning to an underlying sense that things an underlying sense of things being okay as they are, of ourselves being okay as we are. This is kindness. We return to a way of relating to ourselves that is less oppressive, less oppressive, less aggressive, less hostile, less critical, less judgmental, less fear-based. Sit in peace. Sit in peace. Please, all weekend, be really kind to yourself. The experience you're having is fine. And it can always be the source of kindness, insight, and compassion. We do not need a special kind of experience or feeling in our, in our mind or body to wake up. And this is a theoretical mistake that we make as practitioners, not only at the beginning, but actually for quite some time. It does go away. Once we realize that whatever experience we're having in our mind and body is not only okay, but not separate from the possibility of insight and compassion, there's a level of relaxation that just shifts our practice, I would say, almost permanently. And so I'd like to charge you and invite you to really explore that. You are fine as you are. So less pushing, less pushing, less trying so hard. Continuity, continuing to apply, to apply the techniques but appreciating yourself. What might we come back to? What might we renew? We might renew faith and trust. And if we identify as having strong faith or trust, we might significantly increase our faith. And not necessarily in a religious sense, though maybe, if, uh, if that's your persuasion. But not necessarily in a religious sense. It's not the faith I'm talking about. But rather a faith in the inherent workability of life. A faith in the inherent workability uh, of whatever the current circumstances are you find yourself in. An inherent workability, an inherent faith in the workability in goodness of things as they are. Okay. We start to trust in oneself. We start to trust each other. We start to trust the universe. If we connect in with and cultivate within ourselves 
qualities of goodness like generosity and kindness and presence, the kind of presence that allows us to appreciate our life, we understand that that is the inherent possibility of the world that we live in. Why? Because here it is. It's my direct experience. Right? And it can be that way for others, and that can be the world that we live in. And we just, we just see it. Right? And those of you who have been on retreat know that this is a real possibility. That together, uh, particularly with the support of teachings, the practices themselves, and sangha, uh, that we really do nurture this. That this is a distinct possibility that we've set out to uh, nurture together. This renewal is always based on the direct experience of a self that is less solid, a self that is more permeable, more flexible, and less caught up in old ways of doing things. So we can drop trying to figure out analytically and intellectually uh, the questions that preoccupy our lives. We can actually, truly let them go and be okay. And maybe much, much, much better than okay. We can find uh, a radical contentment in doing so. So the practice is one of risk-taking, of abandoning that as fully as we can for four days. In so doing, understanding and learning certain things that allow us to continue to do that beyond the four days. So in practical terms, um, what this means is that we are, allow- are allowing for greater, greater, and in- greater and greater intimacy with things as they are and less and less engagement with the content of the stories and narratives that we are repeating in our mind. Okay. What happens is we have a certain feeling or emotion or a pain in the body or we have a certain idea and that triggers or conditions Another feeling, another idea, which triggers or conditions a worry about the future or a grief about the past, and then, you know, follow this out to its logical conclusion. This is simply what our mind does. And on on retreat, we start to see that. And hopefully, and this is how it happens for me, I just get tired of it. I just, I realize that it's making me really, really tired. Some of us were um, talking about this, I think, at dinner. It just makes us tired. And so we start to drop it. We we really, uh, we we just decide, okay, I'm going to put it down. So thoughts are arising. Emotions, pleasant and unpleasant, are arising. And we're willing to be without figuring out. We're willing to be with them without analyzing. We're willing to be with them without processing. We're willing to be with the strong sensation in the upper back that comes with worry about the future without getting into the content behind that worry. We just feel the contraction in the upper body. We notice the fear. Notice the breath. Breathe. Keep paying attention. Don't get into the story. Don't try to understand. Back pain dissolves. We see the changing nature, both of the pain itself, the worry was not permanent, and the self that worried is no longer here. This current version of self is okay. There's a little bit of contentment. Soften. Continue to soften. And this is how it is. Pleasant and unpleasant. Pleasant and unpleasant. So, you all named it at the beginning. I'm just repeating what you already said in our opening circle. That this is a wonderful opportunity. This is a precious opportunity. uh, To live with oneself 
in a very uh, unique way. A way that is just absolutely full of giving to yourself. Giving after giving after giving of this generous heart that is willing to be with yourself in this moment and in the next moment and in the next moment just as you are. And we're giving you all these forms which I'm going to go through uh, in a moment with you to emphasize some of the things that Janusz talked about. Um, and these forms are basically here to protect us and they're here to create what we call the container which is the retreat structure or schedule itself. And yet, you are in charge, okay? Um, please don't consider uh, the schedule and um, the meditations and the interviews and um, the yoga practice to be um, something imposed upon you from the outside. But see if you can bring an attitude of appreciation and interest to the possibility of space that letting go provides. Right? All of the form is taken care of. Sharon Salzberg writes, I think in terms of a retreat, one of the best attitudes to have altogether is to see it as an experiment. You're just trying things. You know we can live in such a rut. Nobody's suggesting you be silent for the rest of your life or to do certain protocols or whatever. But you're checking things out to see how they feel, to see if they support you in some way. Don't feel you're being co coerced into anything. But it's this grand experiment, so it's a wonderful thing. It's an experiment in happiness, actually. I love this. It's an experiment in happiness, actually. So how do we do this uh, experiment in happiness? How do we uh, deepen and renew in all of these ways? There are two qualities that we look to cultivate in our practice. Uh, the first is effort, and the second is ease. Okay? And I've already touched on them. Effort simply is the continuity of practice. It's uh, going to the meditation hall, then going to walking meditation, then coming back to the meditation hall. And then when one is really tired and wants to uh, take a nap or just eat a bunch of chocolate, we say, ah... I'll just be with the feeling of restlessness and do my walking meditation. And then we have the opportunity to see, oh, when things get difficult, I want to sleep or eat. Right? So, oh, I'm really seeing that clearly. This is helpful. And it's staying with the continuous application of mindfulness, moment to moment to moment. And I think, I think if anything... This is one of the elements that is least uh, comprehended or understood by early meditators or people who are newer to the practice. Um, when I first went uh, for my long retreat in Burma at the monastery, the teacher said, uh, as soon as you wake up in the morning, like as soon as you become aware that you're wake, not even when you've woken up, but when you're waking up, he said, immediately start doing metta. Immediately. Okay? And then just lie in bed a little bit, he said, do some metta. And then before you move your body, be aware that you're going to move your body. Okay? And then when you move your body, feel the muscles in your legs contract and expand. And then when your foot hits the floor next to the bed, note contact, pressure. Right? 
And then when you press into the floor with your foot, note pressure, note your second foot touching the floor. And when you go to reach for the shower, feel the muscles in your arm contract. You know, and the you know, and I it was it took me twelve years to really get it. And he gave me instructions for uh, formal practice in what he called uh, daily life. And formal practice was sitting meditation, walking meditation, and metta. And uh, daily life was eating, drinking, showering, brushing my teeth, and going to the bathroom. Mm-hmm. Right? And he gave me very in- specific instructions. And basically what he was saying is, don't ever not be mindful. And I did, I had a, it was a long retreat. I had an opportunity to really get it. When we let mindfulness go, the, the mind just gets all caught up in all these stories and, and it just goes and goes, and it's like, you know, we're gone for a whole half hour. Distraction conditions distraction, which conditions distraction, which conditions worry, which conditions fear, which conditions more thinking, which conditions distraction, etc., 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 Mindfulness conditions mindfulness, which conditions mindfulness, which conditions mindfulness, which gives rise to insight, which allows the mind to relax, which conditions mindfulness, which conditions mindfulness, which conditions mindfulness. Mindfulness self-perpetuates. So we want to keep it going. What I found is that it's easier to uh, develop and maintain mindfulness than it is to lose mindfulness and try to get it back. And we think, particularly when we're struggling with the practice, that it might be helpful to take a break. I mean, that's just what the mind is conditioned to do. I would encourage you to uh, explore not taking a break. Here's the other side of it, and this is the second quality that we need, ease. And that's the, that's the question, and that's what we're exploring our whole life as practitioner. How do I have constant effort and ease at the same time? Those are the two wings of practice. The ease mostly is the attitude of acceptance and investigation and curiosity. It's, the, it's just a simple willingness to be with things as they are right now. And it's the kindness that doesn't judge yourself for how things are right now. So there's a softness. The efforting, the continuous mindfulness, is the strong back. It's the upright. Okay? The ease is the kindness, it's the gentleness, it's the open heart, it's the soft front. Right? It's the way you hold yourself um, without criticism. So they balance each other, right? Too much effort, that's striving, clinging, attachment. You're working too hard. You're going to get enlightened by dinner. And then you'll leave retreat early. Right? And go catch a movie. You're trying so hard, right? More ease. You can notice too much effort by the attitude, I need to get more, I need to make something happen. Like it gets to day two, and you haven't had a big insight, whatever that might be, whatever your notion of insight is, right? And we're not going to give you your money back, so you better get some insight. And so you just start start working really hard. Okay, so you want to back up a little bit. Too much ease is the absence of right effort, or it's simply not applying mindfulness continuously enough. Okay, so this is the opposite. The body and mind might actually be at ease, but it's not a t- the mind is not attentive. You might be daydreaming, which is relatively pleasant compared to grieving the past or worrying about the future. But you're not cultivating any new knowledge. You're actually distracted. So, too much ease might feel good, but there's not enough focus to really stay with the object of attention very long. You're daydreaming. From the Dhammapada, Wonderful it is to train the mind. Wonderful it is to train the mind. So swiftly moving, seizing whatever it wants. Good it is to have a well-trained mind, for a well-trained mind brings happiness.
Okay. So in response to how do we do this, two qualities, effort and ease. And then in response to how do we do this, how do we approach this possibility of deepening renewal, uh, well, we do that through certain forms that have been handed down over many, many years, some of which a little bit more contemporary, but mostly we're using very, very old forms. Walking meditation, uh, metta or friendliness meditation. We'll do a metta chant later, and then we'll do a formal uh, metta practice tomorrow and each day. Individual meetings, uh, having an opportunity to talk with one of, the, one of us about your practice. Uh, silence, including no eye contact, no high fives or elbows, you know, it's just staying in your bubble, staying in your bubble. Mindful eating, um, whatever that means to you, you know, we have different needs and preferences for uh, uh, our relationship to food, but uh, it could just mean slowing down and uh, crazy idea, but maybe actually tasting the food. Uh, feeling it in the mouth, feeling it go down. I mean, you know, maybe pausing between bites. I mean, you know, maybe pausing between bites. Mindful yoga. Okay. Maybe you're tired and don't want to go to yoga. Yoga could actually invigorate. Could have told. Sometimes yoga will just push the sloth and torpor right out. It's amazing. And uh, refuges and precepts, which we'll take tonight and which we'll chant together in the morning. And the refuges and precepts are a way of our li- aligning ourselves uh, with the tradition of lineage holders and practitioners and core forms of the mindfulness tradition. And also a way of creating uh, further safety and protection for us as a collective. The refuges represent an interest in focusing on the forms that create the foundation of our tradition, Buddha, Dharma, and Sangha, the triple gems. And the precepts deal with sila, the coming together of renunciation and ethical conduct. Uh, So these are things we do or don't do uh, to help hold uh, the container. And the last part of our form is nature. And just a very welcome and happy invitation to encourage you to be outside as much as you want and to really hear the birds and see the water. Find a way to touch the water when the, hot, the tide is high enough. You know, feel the water. Um, you know, lie down on the grass. Uh, even if it's raining, maybe go for a walk. When it's sunny, feel the sun on your face. Appreciate, connect. Um, let that aspect of the universe uh, renew you. And consider what that might mean for you while you're here. Uh, taking, a, taking an opportunity to really connect. Ajahn Amaro writes, There is a profound physicality involved in living in a wild environment. When we are not caused to refer incessantly to our name or social role among other humans, when we can just be another creature in the forest, it changes our perspective on things. Nature itself is recognized as our body, even the great earth itself. Its cycle of seasons, its moods of weather reflect our own moods back to us, and all that we habitually think that we are, this body and mind separate from this world, is revealed as simply dynamic patterns of nature, irrespective of what they are conventionally called inside or outside me or the world. One of the things we're doing in practice is we are giving back to nature what we have mistakenly appropriated as our own. The sense of me or I which creates the dichotomy and illusion of a separate self which underlies avijja. We can do away with that. And we can, uh, we can restore the basic understanding of interdependence. Okay. 
so as a way to close uh, this time together and strengthen the container, we'll take the refuges and precepts together. This is a single-sided document that says Refuges and Precepts on the top. Just briefly uh, say something about the form. Uh, we'll recite this together, okay? Taking uh, refuge in the Buddha is taking refuge in uh, placing some experimenting with trusting the living example of the Buddha as someone who awoke and was capable of skillful actions, uh, wisdom, kindness, compassion. Okay, so uh, we could say we're also taking refuge uh, in an inherent trust in ourselves, in our own uh, Buddha potential that we have this within us. Taking refuge in the Dhamma is simply taking refuge in both the teachings and the techniques. The teachings and the practices, the formal meditation practices. And taking refuge in the Sangha is an exploration of commitment to and appreciation of uh, the strength that is uh, cultivated by doing this work together. The simple fact that other people are here and they're trying to find this balance between ease and effort and so too we have the advantage of being lifted up by that and to the degree that we're putting energy into our own practice in the same way we are contributing to that collective container of effort and ease. We'll be taking refuge in the first five precepts. Uh, the first one, not killing. Uh, please consider this just not doing harm to others, uh, humans and otherwise, in all its variations. This is an intention to not do harm. To refrain what is not taken. Um, we don't take another's food. We also don't take another's silence. Um, we don't put things down somewhere assuming that someone else will take care of it or put it away for us because then we take from them um, time. You know, uh, Sometimes when I'm, I go to the YMCA like three or four days a week and I do some, I have a spinal injury so I do some exercises for my spine. I go in the sauna and I always have a magazine with me. And about half of the time, I get up, I take a few steps toward the door, and my mind goes, it's a little bit of effort to get my magazine, and like, because I have to take a shower, then I have to go put it back, and I'm thinking, I'll just leave it in the sauna, someone probably want to read it later. <laughs> but really, if I really look at my mind, I just don't want to go the extra step to put it back on the little rack by the exercise <laughs> bikes. And yeah, maybe someone wants to read it, but if they don't, when the custodian comes in, they actually have to pick up my stuff. So what am I taking away from that person? A little bit of his time, maybe? Maybe, am I, maybe I'm taking away some of his integrity. Like, I'm a paying customer. I don't have to put the magazine away. Someone who works here can do it. Right? So one of my practices is putting all my stuff away at the Y. You know, it's a distinct practice. Number three, uh, on retreat, uh, abstaining from all sexual activity. This is not a position against sex. It's a position for sensory strength in order to strengthen the mind. That's actually uh, the purpose of all of these. Strengthen the mind. Also, uh, refraining from sexual activity is a practice also of not harming others. We're here for practice. Okay. We're not here for dating. We're not here for having uh, certain needs met that would be uh, accommodated by another person's body. And people can trust that we're not imposing 
ourselves in that way at all. There's a sense of security in that. We can relax together. Refrain from false speech. Refrain from speech, including no eye contact. And not taking intoxicants which cloud the mind and cause heedlessness. So we're, we're caring for our body and mind. We're also not distracting or regulating moods or thoughts by intoxicants, which takes away our chance of learning how to self-regulate without tox- intoxicants. And one note about this, um, please don't stop taking uh, prescription medications. Retreat is not a good time to do that. Okay? I will read uh, the first line uh, once. Why don't you read it with me the second and third time? And then we'll go through this together. And I think I'll read it quite slow since it might be new to some of you. Okay? I do ask that you use your voice here. We're going to be chanting in the mornings and in the evenings. And if you put a little energy into it, uh, you'll start to learn it. Okay? And there's a nice resonance we create together. It actually doubles as a concentration doubles as a concentration practice, okay? Namo tassa bhagavato arahato sama sambuddhasa Namo tassa bhagavato arahato sama Namo tassa bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhasa Buddham saranam gacchami You guys can do this with me. Buddham saranam gacchami Dhammam saranam gacchami Sangam saranam gacchami Lutiyam hi buddham saranam gacchami Lutiyam hi dhammam saranam gacchami Lutiyam hi sangam saranam gacchami Tatiyampi Buddham Saranam Gachami Tatiyampi Dhamam Saranam Gachami Tatiyampi Sangam Saranam Gachami Panati Pata Veramani Sika Padam Samadhyami Panati Pata Veramani Sika Padam Samadhyami Adina Dana Veramani Sika Padam Samadhyami Adina Dana Veramani Sika Padam Samadhyami Abramacharya Veramani Sika padam samadhyami Abramacharya veramani Sika padam samadhyami Musawada veramani Sika padam samadhyami Surya Meraya Maja Pamadatana Veramani Sika Padam Samadhyami Surya Maja Pamadatana Veramani Sika Padam Samadhyami Idame Silam Maga Fala Nanasa Chayo ho tu idame silam magafala nanasa pachayo 